Dress? The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dressed listeners, we hope that you are appropriately fluffed and flounced for today's episode, which is part two of our discussion of the history of European lace. Earlier this week, Michelle Major, Professor Emerita at the Bard Graduate Center and Emma Cormick, Associate Curator at the Bard Graduate Center in NYC, joined us to talk about their Tour de Force exhibition, Threads of Power, Lace from the Textile Museum St. Gallen, which is currently on view now through January 1st, 2023. Earlier this week, Emma and Michelle chatted with us about the early origins of lace making techniques and tools, as well as the power dynamics between lace makers and its wearers. And today we turn our attention to the emergence of machine-made laces and the technologies that made them possible. You know, April, this is one of the core themes we explore on dress, and that is fashion's evolution that is inextricably bound to technological advancements throughout history. As we all know by this point, this is one of my favorite things to talk about and never stop talking about it. Um, And also one of the reasons I actually became a fashion historian. Well, you know, that and also pretty, pretty things. (laughs) which we all love. But in today's episode, uh, the three of us also discussed some of our favorite objects in the exhibition, of which there is no dearth, a total of 275 examples of lace dating back to the 16th century, as well as paintings, prints, books, tools, and garments, which contextualize and evidence more than 400 years of lace making in Europe and America. With still so much ground to cover, Emma, Michelle, welcome back for part two. So, of course, All of the lace that we've been talking about up to now has been handmade lace and techniques. But when did we begin to see experimentation with machine-made laces? And what were some of the early technologies used in the making of machine-made lace? So you see the invention of machines that can make lace-like textiles at the end of the 16th century. So the first of which is um, the, the stocking frame, which was invented in the late 1580s. And that really laid the groundwork for machine-made tool and net grounds. Um, And then it's not until later that you see um, the development of lace-specific machines. So it it has a long and very complicated history. A lot of the machines were developed in England. And you see that inventors at the time are constantly iterating and constantly expanding on machines that one person invents so that it eventually becomes sort of a conglomeration of of lots of different technologies. Some of the most well-known examples are, for example, the pusher machine, which can eventually recreate machine-made lace um, that resembles Chantilly bobbin, handmade bobbin lace. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the most important machines is Heathcote's bobbinet machine, which in its layout of the, the machine parts resembles the bobbins on a lace maker's pillow. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. And he, he took inspiration for the machine's layout by watching a, a bobbin lace maker um, and seeing how the, the threads twist over and under each other. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. Really? The early nets 
were essentially that, and that the motifs were often added by hand subsequently by, by women who would go in with the thread and needle um, and, and create, you know, floral motifs or whatever they were. Later, you have the attachment of the, you know, the jacquard mm-hmm. attachment to lace machines. And then they can really imitate or they can create any kind of um, pattern, including very complex ones, mm-hmm. the same kinds of things that are done in handmade lace. Yeah. Well, and also embroidery machines enter the picture at some point, right? And they're related to this term chemical lace. I think that is a little bit jarring, perhaps, for some listeners unfamiliar with it, um, thinking that you're wearing this chemical lace next to your skin. But this is one of the processes that really revolutionized the industry. Why is it called chemical lace, and and how did its introduction affect the trajectory of of lace making as we start to kind of like eke into the 20th century? So chemical lace is something that emerges in in Eastern Switzerland. And this is something that uh, Ilana Koss, our um, co-curator from the Textile Museum, writes about in the chapter that she co-authored with um, another lace scholar um, of this time period and place. And Eastern Switzerland was long known for the production of very fine linen um, in the 19th and embroidery in the 19th century. Initially, they're doing hand embroidery for domestic, but also in large part foreign consumption or export. And as lace becomes, you know, extremely popular in the 19th century, and we should say in the 19th century, lace is really exclusively worn by women. Men are no longer wearing lace. There were as with the, the machines that Emma was talking about, the lace machines, there were many attempts, several attempts, whatever, made on the part of embroidery manufacturers to replicate something that looked like lace. So mm-hmm. you know, not just, not embroidery. And it's in the 1880s, right? That these manufacturers discover that by embroidering with cotton on a silk ground, you could dissolve the silk ground, but not the cotton embroidery threads, so that you would then be left with something that looks like lace. Mm-hmm. So initially, they're using, uh, I think, you know, chlorine. Then they move to caustic soda. At some point, they're using um, uh, acetone, right, to dissolve the ground. Um, now, today, in a more environmentally friendly atmosphere, um, they're using essentially water. But the end result is the same, is that you're dissolving the base fabric um, onto which these motifs have been embroidered. And by the time it gets quite sophisticated, which is at the turn of the 20th century, these machines and or this process can really replicate almost any kind of lace. Um, and that's what you see in the pattern books that are on the third floor in the galleries. So they're they're imitating both historical lace from the you know, 17th and 18th centuries. And also, you know, sort of by, what would you say, I'm on, you know, 1900, the early 20th century, um, making, you know, chemical lace that has sort of an art nouveau aesthetic or a more art deco aesthetic. Um, so they're really able to, to cater their products, products to the demands of fashion, mm-hmm. women's fashion. Faster and cheaper, of course. Yeah, and, and that was going to be my next question to you is, is how did the fashion industry initially react to machine-made lace? Because lace had really been a luxury good 
up until this point, although access to it was, as Michelle, you said, if you had the money, where there's a will, there's a way. But now this chemical lace blows the marketplace wide open. So how did fashion react at that time? Well, the mechanized lace industry really takes off in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And this is in the context of a burgeoning middle class, you know, throughout Europe and the U.S., so there are many very happy consumers who can <laughs> buy a product that yeah. previously was out of their reach. I want to say, and I mean, you should, again, correct me if I'm wrong, in um, Ilona and Anne's chapter, I think they say that one of the early machines, the, the handmade people, weren't the embroidery machines weren't too happy about it. And they tried to, maybe I'm confusing this with the Luddites, but th- they weren't too happy about these machines. Um, but essentially, I, th- I mean, I think the, the fashion world responded very positively. Mm-hmm. And particularly, as I was saying earlier about in terms of what the, the, the machines could do, by the 1840s and 50s, the lace machines could really replicate uh, any kind of handmade lace. So, and, and you see in publications of the time around the things like the Great Exhibition of 1851 and um, other other sources that... Um, People are saying, you know, you really have to look very, very closely in order to be able to tell whether it's made by machine or by hand. And also saying that not only are they the machine-made goods sort of equal in terms of their design and their, you know, overall sort of beauty, whatever, that they, they're a fraction of the cost. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can just insert here, because we talk about this also in our chapter, that this is also the period say in the 18, particularly so say from the 1840s, something like that, that you see a, a renewed interest in acquiring, wearing, collecting antique lace. So lace of the 17th and 18th centuries, because this is one way that the super wealth or that the very wealthy could demonstrate that they, they had access to something that was, you know, real lace, which is how handmade lace was referred to as opposed to imitation lace mm-hmm. what machine made lace how that was known refashioning that lace too yeah so often i mean women might have antique lace worn by their antecedents in their trunks in the attic or something um but you could also start going to or you know you have the um, establishment of lace you know lace dealers uh, dealers who are, who are specializing in antique lace in the mid 19th, from the mid 19th through the, the you know late late 19th and early 20th centuries, but sometimes it's it's purchased by women to wear, but also it's a big moment for collect the collecting of antique lace, which a lot of it ends up in museums. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that's part of that pendulum of fashion, right? Like we see it like with the emergence of the arts and crafts movement when we have industrialization, like all of a sudden there becomes this other sort of kind of like niche. Vogue, or almost like a subculture that wants to go back to the handmade as like directly in opposition to the machine. So that we see that again and again and again in the history of fashion, which I think is very interesting. One of my favorite pieces in the exhibition was a polychrome machine-made piece from the 1920s that's realized in gold and blue thread. And it's kind of this introduction of machine-made lace that we get to see these more sort of fantasy 
fashion-y design elements and motifs in lace making. Is it the technology itself that facilitated this shift? Or would you completely disagree with me on that point in terms of like the early 1920s, we start to see these kind of more, I guess I would say trendy little micro trends within lace. I mean, you certainly do see in handmade lace that these sort of fantasy elements and particular motifs go in and out of style. Um, So you do see that in handmade lace, but I do understand what you mean. Um, And I think as Michelle mentioned, it's really with chemical lace that is so versatile you can really create whatever motifs you want and it can replicate all of those antique styles and all of those historicizing styles, but it can also create these sort of new geometric styles and um, incorporate different materials. And all you really need is a stable embroidery stitch that, that ties those motifs together so that when you dissolve the backing, it's, it, it can stay together. Yeah. The world is your oyster at that point. Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, Ilona has made the point in going around the galleries with her that, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, early 20th century, the Swiss manufacturers are extremely innovative. Mm-hmm. And so they are playing with whatever designs, materials, colors, because fashion itself is, is, is really, is speeding up. Changes in fashion are speeding up. And so they're really intent on being able to provide, right? And capitalize, of course. (laughs) It's always about money in the end. (laughs) And like Michelle said, you see them looking to innovate and create new new patterns and new styles, but you also see, particularly in Eastern Switzerland, that they're also looking to handmade lace styles and they're trying to replicate those styles that were popular in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. And that really is the basis of the Textile Museum's collection. It was founded in the early 1860s, um, came together officially in 1878. It was set up by the Merchants Association in St. Gallen, the Kaufmannische Direktorium. And it was the home for collections of the region's textile industry. um, And they, manufacturers, started collecting antique lace as inspiration for their production. So one of the, the biggest collectors was a man named Leopold Eclay, who was the head of the Eclay Frere um, Embroidery and Lace Company. And we have him to thank for a large portion of the museum's historic lace collection. He donated a number of objects in uh, between 1904 and 1908, and about 40 of his objects are on view at BGC now. So he initially started collecting for his own interest and saw that it was beneficial for his company. Um, and then now we're very glad that they're in the museum and they continue to be a source of inspiration for the, the region's industry. Speaking of pieces in the exhibition, I shared one of my favorite pieces. I was hoping that both of you might speak about one or two of your favorite examples that are in the show. Sure. So actually, that's a nice segue. One of my favorite <laughs> objects um, is on the third floor and it's these huge pattern books that were compiled by the Eclay Fair Company of their production in the late 19th, early 20th century. And it's these small, usually sort of six inch by six inch swatches of their chemical lace production. And we have them in the gallery on display alongside the handmade pieces from the Eclay collection that you can see immediately upon looking that they are almost identical. So they're really looking for the way to produce these intricate handmade styles in chemical lace. 
And the books themselves are, they're gigantic. There are hundreds of pages in each one. I think Ilona told us that the collection has hundreds of pattern books themselves. And so really flipping through that, you, you get a sense of the history of the embroidery and lace industry in the region. And the best part, I think, is that most of the samples include prices. So most of them are in U.S. dollars. You can see, for example, what this six-inch tall border of Puente Venise-inspired chemical lace would have cost in 1818, the late 1890s, for example. One of my extra nerdy fashion history interests is, are those historic price conversions? I love doing them. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, haven't, we haven't done it. We, you know, upon flipping through them while installing them in the gallery, I, I was like, wow, these, it's an amazing source of information and history. Mm-hmm. I will send you my favorite online historic currency conversion. Oh, yes, please. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That'd be great. Michelle, what about you? Do you have some favorites? As you know, I think that one of the, the highlights of the exhibition, um, the, the Frelange headdress, which is the French gallery, you know, just because it's very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, and it's a, it's a very beautiful point de France lace, but... Uh, you know, as we say in the object label or the wall panel, I forget which, you know, you see these in so many portraits and paintings and prints from in the, you know, the 1680s to the you know early 1700s. But the fact that this one has survived intact, you know, without being cut up or made into something else in the 19th century is really wonderful. And like you were saying before about the, the rough, you see in terms of how it's, I mean, pleated, it's not really, but, you know, sort of gathered or, you know, ruffled across the top of the head, how much, how much more lace there is than, you know, than what you actually see when it's, you know, formed into this headdress. So that's a favorite. And I think my other favorite is the giant chantier shawl that greets you as you come up onto the third floor. Um, I mean, I think I'm just a sucker for mid 19th century. extravagance in terms of the fashionable silhouette and these 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 amazing shawls i mean the scale of them mm-hmm. is you know n- nothing uh, i mean yes okay we talked about the alb earlier but, but um or the antipendium slash alb but the, the 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 scale of those things you know that was intended to accommodate the crinoline skirts of the mid 18 mid 19th century you know 1850s 1860s um and the complexity of the design and you know we talk about it in our chapter and certainly Santina Levy in her book talks about the fact that this is this kind of this moment marks a real high point in the handmade lace industry in the 19th century in terms of technique combined with design um, that the two really mesh and you know we could go into more detail but the ways that the, the way that these were put together you know because they're made in sections um, and there were women who, whose only job was to create essentially, you know, the invisible join of the multiple parts that might constitute one of these shawls. Um, so talk about eye strain and, you know, yeah. the demands on your, yeah, on your eyesight is, was, you know, really remarkable. But um, I think they're just, yeah, I, I just love them. They're over the top. What can I say? Yeah. And I think if I remember correctly, that particular shawl that you're referencing is rendered in black. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. And correct? that's another thing. I mean, I think the 
that again, you don't see, you know, some black lace was worn pre 19th century, but mostly it's the white linen thread, mm-hmm. right. That, that was used. Um, I mean, there's also was blonde lace, which is a type of silk lace, which could be actually, you know, natural colored or black, but, but it's the, the real vogue for black lace doesn't occur until the sort of 1840s, 50s, 60s, like that. Um, and, and then later into the 19th century. So yeah, to see those, the, the black worn over, say, a solid colored, like we have with the repros, you know, a pink gown or a yellow gown or a blue gown. I mean, just to, to see the design so clearly, um, you know, over a huge skirt is really impressive. Yeah. Another one of my favorite pieces is actually the Christian Dior jacket or mm-hmm. coat that's uh, on the, the third mm-hmm. floor where it's, um, you said yellow, which triggered that memory for me because the jacket itself, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be like a yellow taffeta or taffeta-like. I think it's satin. Is it satin? Yeah, but it's the lining of the jacket that's lace. So it's like this little kind of peep show that you're not going to see this extraordinary textile, except for every once in a while when it like flaps open just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Right. But again, yes, it's not just used like on the inside of the collar and the fronts of the coat. It's, it's entirely lined in this. Yeah, and it's a fascinating motif. It's a little kind of like, has a little modern twist to it as well. On that same floor, the exhibition, of course, includes examples of 20th century couture, like Christian Dior, that incorporate lace. And there's also a section on very recent innovations in lace making. I'm curious if there's any examples that you would like to mention or developments in contemporary lace making that you're excited about? So on view on the in the last gallery, we have examples of what is essentially 3D printed silicone lace, which is made by Jakob Flatfer, which is the St. Gallen-based textile company um, founded in 1904, um, still very much at the forefront of experimental and innovative textile designs, including for chemical lace. So this, I would say, we knew pretty early on that we wanted to finish the exhibition with an example of um, what they call hypertube, which is this 3D silicone lace. And the final object in the exhibition is this hypertube Gipur lace collar. So inviting people to reflect on how the form and motifs are similar to what they've seen downstairs, but in fact, it's made out of silicone with thoroughly modern technology. Yeah. Yeah. We always, that is something we talk about again and again and again on the show is how fashion is inextricably tied to the history of technology. Always, always, always. Yes, totally. Yeah. And I, I was thinking of the, an interview that Emma and I did with Martin Leutold, who was head designer at Schlepfer, uh, one of these, uh, the big St. Gallen firms for 40 years. And he is like the living embodiment of innovation. I mean, his talking to him about his 40 years at Schleffer, he was always pushing the boundaries of what can we do next? You know, how else can we play with this textile or, right? I mean, he was, he's just, and even though he's retired, he's still, he's still very involved in, you know, a number of projects and things like that. But he's, we had the very good fortune to go to his studio uh, last this past summer, um, and again, he sort of you know talked us through some of what he did at Schlepfer, and you could see how sort of I mean how he would um, inspire people 
mm-hmm. uh, with whom he was working to come up with all kinds of creative ways, you know, to use the technology that they have and to advance the technology that they have. Well, and that kind of begs the point, which is um, one of my last questions for you, but, you know, we're like 500 years into lace history or lace as we kind of now understand it. I'm curious as to your thoughts on why lace continues to hold this kind of fashion forward allure in terms of its use today in contemporary fashion. Well, I think Michelle and I agree. For one thing, it's beautiful. Um, (laughs) And for me in particular, this connection to, like we've just been saying, the technology and the, the process through which it's made is really fascinating. You end up with this intricate, complicated, complex textile and thinking about either the hands that made it or the machine, which was developed by hands that made it, is really fascinating. And Michelle and I, when we were in St. Gallen on our research trips or when the objects arrived in New York, we it, it's hard to tear yourself away from just looking closer and closer and closer at these objects, both machine-made and handmade. Um, it's hard to it's hard to zoom in enough to see how these structures are formed by hand or machine. So for me, it's it's the the making process that is really informs its enduring desirability. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I would certainly agree with what Emma has said and that there is this fascination with the hands and, that, and that's part of going back to what I was saying about the commentators in the 19th century. It's this human touch that goes into the making of these objects. And that was something that the, these commentators might talk about that, you know, they're, they're saying that the, the machine creates this perfect uniform textile, but with the handmade lace, you know, you, there's the, the, you can detect like, you know, the lace maker's hand. And yeah, Elena has a funny story about, right. That somebody who was another lace maker told her, right. Like if you look, you can see when the lace maker was happy or sad or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally, I mean, the, but yes, the, the development of technology is, is also really fascinating. And I think, you know, when, when Em and I went to St. Gallen the first time and we saw Maria Weber, who, who operates the, the 19th century pantograph machine. Mm-hmm. Um, the hand embroidery machine. Mm-hmm. The hand embroidery machine, right, with the, that utilizes a pantograph. Um, it, it's really interesting to see how this machine works. I mean, it's just the, I'm, I'm not a machinist. I, I mean, I would never come up with this thing. So it's really interesting to see, you know, how these things develop. And as Emma and I were talking earlier, I think there's still this connection that we have, that, you know, lace, where it came from. And that it started out as something that was very exclusive and very expensive and rarefied. And so that there's, this kind of this feeling of, you know, when you put on lace in some, you know, tangential way, you're associated, you know, with the, with that history, Mm -hmm. that luxury. Mm -hmm. I I would say too, lace is one of those things that, and this is kind of the opposite of how a lot of knowledge and learning works where like you learn more and it demystifies the process and then it becomes more transparent and then maybe you're not as interested. Lace is the opposite, I feel like, or at least it is for me, because it's like the more you learn about it, the more you become obsessed with it, right? 
like your curiosity just keeps going because it's exactly going back to exactly what you're talking about. It's the lives of these people. It's the development of the technology and like really getting in there and looking, 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 looking and trying to figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? So we cannot sign off today without discussing the incredible exhibition catalog that accompanies the show. It's more than 400 pages. Correct me if I'm wrong on this count, but I think there are 16 different contributors who focus on even more niche subject matter than we have talked about here today because we couldn't go into detail about everything. What might our listeners expect if they are interested in ordering the exhibition catalog? So the catalog, as most exhibition catalogs do, go much goes much deeper than the interpretation in the gallery um, can because we are limited on wall space. So it's split into sex- thematic sections that go roughly chronologically. So um, our first four chapters are under the section heading The Emergence of Lace in Early Modern Europe. So there we have a chapter by Barbara Carl, who was the curator of the Textile Museum's 2018-2019 exhibition about their historic lace collection. Um, We have a chapter by Femke Spielberg at the Met about lace pattern books. We have a chapter by Paula Hoti about lace making in early modern Italy. Um, And we have a chapter by Frida Sorber about Antwerp as a center of lace making and lace dealing. And then our next section is um, about fashion and lace in Spain and the Americas between 1500 and 1800. So here, like the the chapter Michelle mentioned by Amalia Descalza Lorenzo, about lace in Spanish portraiture of the 16th and 17th centuries. We have three chapters about lace and lace-like textiles worn in um, the Spanish Americas. So the first one by Maricel Melendez about lace and clothing and status in 18th century Spanish America, followed by a chapter by James Middleton about lace in New Spain and Peru between 1600 and 1800. Um, And then finally in this section, a chapter by Laura Beltran Rubio about lace and dress in the Viceroyalty of New Granada. Then we have a small section about lace in France between 1660 and 1790. So that's two chapters, the first by Denis Brunat um, about lace um, as an economic factor in France. And then the next one by Leslie Miller, like Michelle mentioned, about um, lace in France between 1690 and 1790. And then we get into mechanization and revivalism in the industries between 1800 and 1925. Michelle and I co-wrote a chapter about lace and the lace industries in France, Belgium, and England between 1800 and 1900. We have a chapter about um, Arthur Blackburn and co, um, who was a prominent lace dealer in London in the 19th century. That's by Annabelle Bonn and Talbot. And we have a chapter by Emily Zilber about lace making in New York, um, informed by Italian lace traditions. It's called Italy to New York. Um, making historic textiles modern at the Scuola d'Industria Italiane, followed by the chapter co-written by Ilona Kos, our co-curator, and Anne Vonner, Jean Richard, about the Leopold Ecle collection in St. Gallen and this looking to historical lace to inform 19th century production in Switzerland. And then we have a section about lace uh, innovations in lace from 1900 to today. So that's one chapter by Catherine Orman about fashion and lace since 1900. Finally, we have an interview with uh, Martin Leutold, who Michelle mentioned, as well as Tobias Forster and Hans Schreiber from Forster Rohner, um, which is one of the other large companies in St. Gallen that still produces chemical lace for couturiers around the world. Um, And then we have various back matter, including an illustrated checklist of the exhibition, a glossary, 
And throughout, it's a heavily illustrated catalog. Um, yes, I think it we is. have over <laughs> 600 images. So we've tried to do our best of, uh, you know, giving a sense of these really intricate, amazing objects, um, putting them on paper when, when not everyone can see them in person, as we have been so lucky to be able to do. Well, and I said this to you both before we started recording, but like this exhibition catalog is going to be another one of those like definitive sources on European lace from these time periods. So ton of work went into it. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. (laughs) And I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. This was fascinating. The exhibition is wonderful. We can't encourage our listeners enough to attend and see it in person if they happen to be in New York City. It runs until? January 1st, 2023. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have several more months. Emma, Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you so much, April. It's been great. Thank you so much, April. It's really nice. Emma, Michelle, thank you not only for joining us on Dress, but also for bringing us this seminally important exhibition on lace, the first in 40 years, in fact, in New York City. And this is one for the history books, so you have the remainder of 2022 to check it out in person, Dress listeners. And of course, if you cannot make it in person, there is the exhibition catalog, which Emma so lovingly summarized for us. Yes. And I just want to say here that if you are one of our fellow professionals in the field, you're definitely going to want to buy this book. I was being quite serious in saying it's going to be one of those seminal tomes in the field. So don't do that thing that we all have done where you're like, oh, I'll buy it later. And then you totally miss out because it's sold out. It's out of print and used copies are like $9 million now. So do yourself a favor, buy it now so you don't kick yourself later. There's nearly 400 pages of yummy, yummy lace history to immerse yourself in, including so many interesting lace-related anecdotes that we just didn't have time to cover on the podcast. Well, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the threads of power residing in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at email at dress.iheartmedia.com. You can also, of course, DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episode. And if you'd like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate it. Just like we appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you soon. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.